Well, dear friends, our text this afternoon, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 25. And this is then the ninth sermon in our series from Matthew's gospel. Two weeks ago, we were in verses 12 to 17 of chapter 4, and we said that verse 17 is the heading of the second major division of the Gospel of Matthew that begins there and then runs all the way to Matthew 16, verse 20. And from chapter 4, verse 17 to 16, verse 20, is the section of Matthew that presents Jesus' public ministry. It's his ministry centered in the region of Galilee in the northern part of Israel. You'll recall that it was to Galilee that Jesus withdrew when he heard that John the Baptist had been arrested. That was two weeks ago. And that he went to live in Capernaum on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And from that time, Matthew says in verse 17, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so what we have in our text today in verses 18 to 25 is Jesus's debut, if you will, at least as Matthew presents it. This is Matthew's presentation of the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And the text we have divides quite naturally into two sections that we'll consider together. First, in verses 18 to 22, we have the summoning of Jesus's disciples. And then secondly, in verses 23 to 25, we have the summary of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. So the, the summoning, or the calling, of Jesus' disciples, followed by the summary of Jesus' ministry. Those are our headings for today. Only to stay for a moment with some structural comments, I think it's worth pointing out that this summary that we read here in verses 23 to 25 will be largely duplicated later in Matthew in chapter 9, verse 35. If you have a Bible or you want to flip on your phone over to Matthew 9, you can do that. Listen as I read verse 23 of our text from Matthew 4 first. It says, And Jesus, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And then in Matthew 9, verse 35, we read, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And you hear how similar that is in Matthew 9 to what we have this afternoon in Matthew 4, verse 23. It's very similar. So much so that what we seem to have here is a literary device called inclusio. That is, these are sort of bookends that emphasize for us the material in the chapters between those two points. And what's between those two bookend summary statements are two blocks of material in Matthew. Next week, we start the Sermon on the Mount, which runs from chapters 5 to 7. And the emphasis there is obviously on Jesus' teaching, on his words. Then in chapters 8 and 9, 
It's Jesus' miracles, and especially his miracles of healing, that are in the focus. It's his deeds, so that Jesus' messianic ministry, as Matthew's presenting it, is in both word and deed. And the summary on either end of those two blocks reinforces that content. So that what we read about in summary form today is going to be greatly expanded over the course of the next five chapters of Matthew's gospel, and I hope saying all that just helps you see that there's some intentional ordering of material here in how Matthew structures uh, the early stage of his gospel. But where we begin now in our text is with the summoning of the disciples in verses 18 to 22. And there's a lot for us to reflect on in this text, including the fact that it's the very first thing Matthew tells us about Jesus' ministry. If the announcement in verse 17 about the kingdom of heaven, which, if you recall, is a way of talking about God's kingship, if the announcement of God's kingship might lead you, the reader, to expect some kind of dramatic development in world history, Well, the very first thing we see Jesus doing in Matthew is calling four local fishermen. Hardly what you might imagine to be a world-changing task force. This is the beginning of the kingdom of God. Let's read the text again. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, Jesus saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, before we get into any of the specifics of the text and what was involved here in Jesus' calling, let's begin by recognizing how significant it is that Jesus' first recorded action in Matthew is to gather a group of followers who will commit themselves to join him for the whole period of his public ministry. I don't know if you've ever thought much about it, but from this point on, we don't read stories about Jesus alone in the gospel. Now, I know from time to time he goes somewhere alone to pray and so on, but I mean events in the narrative of Jesus' life. He's never alone again. Even when they're not explicitly mentioned, the presence of Jesus' disciples is everywhere assumed. Wherever Jesus goes, they will go. In fact, the first time Jesus will be left alone after this point will be when the disciples desert him in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26. And while the full listing of the 12 disciples doesn't come in Matthew until chapter 10, the stories from here on in Matthew do assume a wider group of disciples than just these four. In fact, we don't get the calling narrative of all 12. We only get one other a disciple being called in the Gospel of Matthew, and that's Matthew himself, and that's in chapter 9. Which means that this text is the text that's meant to inform our understanding 
of the nature of Jesus' calling his disciples. We'll have more to say about that in a few minutes. But first, let's consider who we have here. There are two sets of brothers in Matthew 4. There's Simon, the one called Peter, and Andrew in verses 18 to 20. And then there's James and John, the sons of Zebedee in verses 21 and 22. And if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that three of the four of these men will form a kind of inner circle among the disciples with Jesus. They're chosen at times to be with Jesus in moments of special significance. For example, at the Transfiguration, in Matthew chapter 17, Matthew says, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Those three will be mentioned from time to time in the gospel, whereas the rest of the twelve more or less aren't. Matthew once or twice, a couple others here and there, but apart from that, it's just the list of their names in chapter 10. Only there's nothing here that suggests why these four were chosen first. There's no indication at all that it's because Jesus saw something in them, some potential or some sincerity that singled them out. Not a hint of that. They seem to be rather ordinary fishermen of the day, two sets of brothers who work together. Luke 5 says explicitly in Luke chapter 5, verse 10, that James and John, sons of Zebedee, quote, were partners with Simon so that the four of these guys worked together a lot. Now, Simon and Andrew here were casting a net into the sea, verse 18 says, and it doesn't change the interpretation much, but I think it's interesting that the word translated net there is a very specific term that refers to the circular casting net, as it was called, about 20 to 25 feet in diameter, it had lead sinkers attached to the outer edge of the net, and it was used by a single fisherman who would gather the net on his arm and then throw it out onto the water, either while standing in a boat or in shallow water. And then the net would be pulled down by the sinkers on the outer ring of it, trapping any fish that were inside. It's tedious work. But that little detail may explain why it was while Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee that this incident occurred. Simon and Andrew were probably standing just off the shore in shallow water to cast these nets. And Jesus approaches them and calls out, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately, verse 20 says, in the middle of the workday, they left their nets and followed him. And we know that didn't mean it was a momentary thing because the language of leaving their nets implies that they left behind everything. Peter himself, in fact, will say that later in Matthew, in chapter 19, verse 27. See, we have left everything and followed you, he says to Jesus. In other words, leaving their nets means they were heeding Jesus' call on their lives to change their primary occupation from fishing for fish to fishing for people. 
Now, a little more on this language of following. Literally in the Greek, Jesus says to them, follow behind me, which is intentional. Because in the first century, disciples of rabbis would literally walk behind their master to show respect, and because the idea was they were to watch and imitate what their master did as he went before them. Jesus is picking up on this language. Follow me means, in rabbinic speech, become my students, be apprenticed to me, join my school, live with me. Only there were some important differences between what Jesus did and what other rabbis of the day did. In the rabbinic literature, disciples were to choose their own masters. And a disciple, in choosing his own master, the disciple's first commitment is to the law, to the Torah. So consequently, the disciple could transfer from one rabbi master to another in order to acquire more knowledge of the law. By contrast, Jesus doesn't wait for volunteers. He selects his own disciples, and he confronts them with an unconditional demand, follow me, he says. Jesus Christ requires absolute allegiance to himself, not merely respectful service, and he doesn't call them to be his apprentices in the intellectual probing of Torah or to rehearse venerable religious traditions. Rather, he calls fishermen to a new kind of fishing. They are to fish for people. And though they would have much to learn, we should not miss here how their discipleship is presented from the very beginning as inseparable from mission. The mission that's central to the disciples' role in Matthew's gospel is here introduced as soon as they are. That's worth thinking through as we reflect on why Jesus calls the people he calls then and now. But putting it all together, this is the picture we have. Everyday fishermen respond to the call of Jesus immediately, leaving everything to follow him and serve his mission. It represented a total reordering of priorities in life and an unreserved commitment to Jesus. And if anything, in James's and John's case, it's even more radical because it involves leaving not just their boat, but in some sense also their father. James and John, it says, were in a boat mending their nets, but the word is different than the net that Simon and Andrew were using. These are most likely what are called trammel nets, which were large compound nets that had three layers made up of five units that were each over 100 feet, the net over 100 feet long. They were used by at least two crews of boats at night on the Sea of Galilee when the fish couldn't see the nets. So it's quite a different operation we're looking at here. And probably it was after what was a night of fishing that Jesus sees these two brothers who were with their father and they had been out with their father and others of their hired crew because Mark in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 20, explicitly says that James and John had hired crew with them as well. 
So here James and John are preparing their nets after the night for the next excursion on the lake. And often caring for this equipment would take up much of a morning after a night of fishing. But the point in the end is the same for them. As with Peter and Andrew, Jesus interrupts their busy activities and he calls them. And they also leave everything, including their father, to follow him. As one commentator puts it, by obeying Jesus' call, they are relinquishing commitment to the family business. Their assets and their livelihood surely having an impact on varied family relationships, responsibilities, and obligations. All of which just seems frankly remarkable, doesn't it? Almost unbelievable. And it is. I mean, one of the key points to take away from this text is the authority that Jesus and his words have. By this time in Matthew, we know that Jesus is the spirit-anointed messianic son in whom the kingdom has arrived. The point here is, in part, that the only appropriate response is to obey him immediately. But... I think it's also important to realize or to recognize that the call and the response of these four brothers, as remarkable as it is, was no emotional spur-of-the-moment kind of decision. Though Matthew doesn't say so, Jesus' call and their response were in fact based on a prior relationship with him. This is not the first encounter between these brothers and Jesus. John's gospel helps to fill in some of the background here. In John chapter 1, verses 35 to 42, it's explicitly stated that Andrew was one of the two disciples of John the Baptist who left John the Baptist to become a disciple of Jesus and that in fact he brought his brother Simon to Jesus as well. In fact, that text is when Jesus first calls Simon by the name Peter. Now actually I want to read that text because I think this is important. I'm going to begin in John chapter 1 verse 35. It says, the next day again, John was, that is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he, Jesus walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. Then verse 37, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. And just note that they've already identified Jesus as the Christ. Verse 42, he, Andrew, brought Peter to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. 
you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, the second disciple in that text isn't named by name, but that's just John's style, if you know it. It's traditionally been identified that this is, that's John, the second disciple who left John the Baptist to follow Jesus. So that that's all happened. And then you go on in John's gospel, and it seems quite likely that it was Andrew and Peter and John and maybe John's brother James, who then were the disciples who accompanied Jesus to the wedding at Cana in John 2, where they observed the miracle that Jesus did. And verse 11 of John 2 says, they believed in him. I would even say these four, Andrew, Simon, John, James, are most likely the disciples of Jesus, or at least some of the disciples of Jesus, who ministered with Jesus in Judea during the first year of Jesus' ministry, which you remember Matthew says nothing about, while John the Baptist's own ministry was ongoing. You can find that there in John chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. So that by the time of the incidents here in Galilee, in Matthew chapter 4, about a year later, these four men, as I understand it, had had plenty of time to consider who Jesus was and what Jesus was up to. We don't know all that happened, but clearly following Jesus had not yet entailed leaving behind their fishing careers. They're back to that now in Matthew chapter 4. But what I think is that they'd probably been waiting for this. That they'd been waiting for the moment when it would be their time to join Jesus in a new way as he embarks on his kingdom mission now that John the Baptist has been arrested. In other words, I think they're ready. And so they respond at once when Jesus calls them. And in fact, in addition to just John chapters 1 to 3, you could look at Luke chapter 5, where these same first disciples call Jesus their master and then witness his miraculous powers on the lake before they leave everything to follow him, right? There's more backstory here than Matthew lets on. And I say all that not because I'm trying to diminish the magnitude of their response in any way at all. Rather, I say it to highlight the fact that their remarkable commitment was actually an outgrowth of their relationship to Jesus. Follow me, Jesus says. And they do, because they had come to know him and believe in him. And in fact, I think this is what allows this text to speak powerfully to us. I mean, some of you may not know Jesus yet. You may not even believe in Jesus yet. If that's the case, then I hope you'll keep coming to Christ the King in the weeks ahead as we listen to Jesus' words and we marvel at Jesus' deeds in these next few chapters in Matthew. But for most of us in this room and probably watching online, we already do know Jesus. We've been with him. We believe in him. We've come to know more about him. And what I'm saying is that this text is for you, Christian. 
I think we see in this text an example of how Jesus can find you in the course of your everyday busy life and say to you, follow me in this way. Not because you don't know who he is, but because you do. And because Jesus has a job for you to do. Maybe that will require something as radical as it did for these disciples. Maybe it will entail the abandonment of some aspect of career or assets or family connection. Though, please, let's remember that Peter was still married and he lived in his home with his wife and his mother-in-law. And that at least John and James's mother, the wife of Zebedee, their father, does appear at other points in the gospel, including at the cross with the other women. I mean, it's not like they never see their family again. But the point is, it might entail something as radical as all of that, or it might not. The question is, do you have your priorities straight? Are you ready to follow Jesus, whatever his call on your life might be? The brother's response here illustrates how obedience is the only appropriate answer to Jesus' call because they know Jesus has authority over every area of their lives and over every area of your life if you're a disciple. To whatever he calls us, we must immediately obey. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that this scene in Matthew isn't Jesus doing evangelism. Simon and Andrew and John and James already knew him, and they already believed in him. John Calvin, in his commentary, says this is not, quote, merely a general description of the call to faith, but a particular one for a certain task. These four brothers were already Jesus' disciples. In this scene, they're being called to put their profession in proper perspective in light of the needs that Jesus says there are to reach their world with the message of salvation. And because these four are ultimately called to a role as apostles in the foundation of the church, then they personally will be required to leave their prior profession. That does not mean that every disciple is called to do the same thing exactly. I like how one author puts it when he says, quote, whatever our profession whether preacher or plumber, teacher or technician, hotel maid or hospital orderly, discipleship means that we place as the priority of our lives joining with Jesus. In reaching our daily world with the good news of life in the kingdom of heaven, I cannot reach non-Christian police officers as efficiently as committed Christian police officers. No pastor can enter into the complex world of corporate finance as effectively as a committed and knowledgeable Christian business person. We each have a privileged place of ministry that is unique to following Jesus in our own daily lives. On one level, the passage gives insight to the historical circumstances of Jesus' announcement of the kingdom of heaven and his recruitment of four crucial partners in that historically unique pronouncement. Yet, 
The incident is a paradigm for disciples of all ages to recognize that we must see ourselves as fishers of men in whatever our calling. Our lives find fullest meaning as we follow Jesus's call to join him in advancing the kingdom of heaven. And I don't mean to emphasize it one way or another. It could be that Jesus radically calls you to something completely different than you're doing today. But he may not. And yet the call Jesus has on your life is every bit as serious. Which brings us then to the summary of Jesus's ministry in verses 23 to 25, and now I have to be quite brief. Once Jesus calls these four brothers to join him in fishing for people, he then embarks on the first of what are at least three extensive ministry tours in Galilee. And Matthew gives here the insightful summary of Jesus' activities in verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And it's obvious from the text, but what we see is that Jesus was teaching and Jesus was proclaiming or preaching, depending on your translation, and Jesus was healing. Now, teaching is usually related to explaining truth to those somehow already familiar with the content, while preaching generally means proclaiming truth to those who are unfamiliar with the content. But the point is not really in how they differ so much as it is here to emphasize that Jesus varied his methods of speaking depending on the type of audience he had. But at the core of all of his teaching and preaching is the message of the gospel of the kingdom, Matthew says. That is the good news concerning God and the inbreaking of God's reign, God's saving reign in the person of his son, and what it all means for our lives. And that's where we're heading next week, of course, as Matthew turns to the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus didn't just talk. Jesus healed. The good news wasn't just proclaimed, it was also demonstrated. Because healing signals that Jesus has authority over the powers of this world. It confirms the arrival of the kingdom of God. No wonder his fame spread throughout all Syria, as verse 24 says, referring to regions north of Galilee, beyond the borders of Israel. They brought him all the sick, Matthew says, because nothing is beyond Jesus' ability to heal, including those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics. The point is that all of that represented the desperate human situation that could be overcome by God alone. Matthew is the gospel writer who uses the term for healing more than any other New Testament book because he wants to emphasize that the arrival of the kingdom is confirmed by Jesus' power over all realms of human existence, spiritual, physical, and emotional. There'll be much to reflect on later as we study Matthew for the place of, of Christian ministry to care about the well-being and the wholeness and the health of people with whom we interact, and we'll reflect on that over time. But 
at the deepest level, both scripture and Jewish tradition take sickness and pain as resulting either directly or indirectly from life in a fallen world. And according to Isaiah, the messianic age would bring an end to such grief. And Jesus' miracles, therefore, dealing with every kind of ailment here and many other places in Matthew, herald this kingdom, the kingdom we still wait for in its fullness, as they show that God has pledged himself to deal with sin and pain and sickness at the deepest level. And so people come to him from all over Israel. Verse 25, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis. These are northern areas, much of which were Gentile. And from Jerusalem and Judea, these are southern areas. And from beyond the Jordan, which of course means east, <laughs> east of the Jordan. Because something big was going on here and people knew it. By traveling around, preaching, teaching, and healing, Jesus now has real people emphatically following him. To at least some of them, he gives the explicit promise that as they follow him, he will make them catchers of others. But to all of them, Jesus gives them a wholeness of life they haven't known before. And while these crowds won't remain as steadfast all through the Gospels as they seem to be at this moment, they all come together now around Jesus. The disciples and the crowds, both. They're ready for the instruction in what it means in practical terms to follow him. And that's called the Sermon on the Mount. And that's where we turn our attention starting next week. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.